Hi everyone, it's Raghu from Mind Rolling, another edition, and today I'm really pleased to have some we were just talking about. It's a family affair here, mm-hmm. and I'm uh, happy, happy, and we've never met, although I have seen you uh, in a talk many years ago in Santa Fe. Ganga Ji, welcome. Thank you. Pleased Thank you. to have you. Um, so, so many cross currents, actually, mm-hmm. and because uh, I have many, many friends who were uh, had uh, spent time with uh, with Papaji, and uh, Papaji uh, is a familiar nickname, like Maharaji is for Neem Karoli Baba, uh, for Sri Punjaji, who is teacher of Gangaji and many other friends of mine, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the we've known for many years. So it's really a, a pleasure, mm-hmm. and I'm hoping to get some uh, some further insights from you good good yes. <laughs> papaji is my guru <laughs> yes he is my guru yes yes and uh just for those of you who do not know papaji's guru is ramana maharshi ramana maharshi so happens he is the first uh being of this nature that i encountered when i first mm-hmm. went to india uh, of course he had passed by then but uh that was the first holy place that I was in India, in Tiruvannamalai, many years ago, when I went over and met Ramdas to meet Neem Karoli Baba at that time. So, yeah, there's so many different intersections. But, Gangaji, would you mind just telling a little bit of, of, of yourself in terms of what was happening with you that actually led you to India mm. and to that uh, very, very uh, graceful meeting? Mm. It was such a mystery because really I was not looking for a guru at all. No. <laughs> I had seen different gurus who had come through the San Francisco Bay Area and it was impressive and I had done lots of Tibetan Buddhist initiations or empowerments, I guess we call them. And I loved the show of it, but I didn't feel a, a deep connection. So I tried practicing different things and I tried reflecting deeply on my life in in different ways that were current at that time. And I had a great life, really. Mm. I was happy in my relationship, in my work, but something was uh, profoundly unfinished. And I prayed for a teacher. But in my mind at that time, this was 1988, 89, I imagined it would be some kind of goddess teacher or or something. I was pretty anti-guru. Oh, really? I'd seen a lot of damage that had been done, and I didn't know, I wasn't taken with the relationship of disciple or devotee and guru. So it was such a mystery, and it was profound synchronicity of events that, that led me to Papaji, and I found myself with a guru. <laughs> so how perfect for my arrogant Western mind mm-hmm. that I was certain that's not what I needed, that it turned out to be precisely what was essential for me. Mm-hmm. And I recognized him right away. I thought I was just going to visit the guru, you know, and get some words of wisdom. And yeah. he, he met us at the door and his arms were wide open and he said, welcome, welcome, come in. And I felt that in the depths of my 
heart and I saw this light of grace in his eyes and I fell in love, mm. deeply in love, absolutely and relatively in love. I just loved this man, his form and and as I discovered over time, what was really animating his form, the life of his form. Mm. Mm. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I could say the same story. I have the same story. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Although I knew I, I was purposeful because I had met Ramdas and I totally trusted him. And we, we've got to talk about trust a little bit later, too. Uh, so that uh, everything he was saying just hit me like mm. an arrow straight into the heart. And so I knew where I was going. And I, I had to twist his arm, actually, because he wasn't supposed to tell anybody about him at that time. So I, I fully, fully mm. know what you're speaking mm. of in that moment, that precious mm. moment. Um, you know, one interesting thing, though, that uh, just uh, stuff I was reading and so on, um, that I think was a, a real motivation or part of what you were looking for, and uh, it's around honesty. That mm. word triggered me because that was, I, I can relate with that big time. Mm-hmm. Uh, honesty uh, in oneself, being honest with that's a very difficult thing. I don't know if you, if you can you talk about that a little bit because that's entirely yeah. important. That is that is the importance really because we are trained, conditioned to be dishonest. We're conditioned to see ourselves uh, as a name or as limited to particular parents, a particular particular culture or belief. And, and we suffer because of that, because there's something not true about all of that. So, you know, often, and, and certainly I experienced in the 1970s and part of the 80s, we just substitute other beliefs for that. So new names, Gangaji is a different name from my other name and birth name and and new cultures and new beliefs and and that feels really good for a while because we're free of the other but i think if we are honest with ourselves until we really discover what is permanently honestly true honestly here we will suffer in our, our search for that truth so I certainly suffered in all the ways we know to suffer, which means looking for ourselves, myself, in the wrong places mm-hmm. that are inherently limited, even the beautiful places. Because if Papaji had a wonderful story he would tell about Ramana. Oh. And Papaji had had some visions of Krishna and dancing with Krishna and, and just in the bhakti of this Krishna love. And, and then it would disappear. And so he actually began a search for who could teach him how to keep Krishna from disappearing. And he went to lots of different gurus and sadhus and swamis throughout India. And p- different people had their opinions and gave him instructions, but he never felt it to be true. It wasn't what he was looking for. And finally, he miraculously, it's always miraculous, I think, found Ramana. And he asked Ramana this question that had been haunting him for years. 
he said, I have these exquisite experiences with Krishna. I'm in absolute bliss and love. And then it leaves. How can I make it stay? And Ramana waited a long time. And then he looked at him and he said, gods that appear and disappear are ultimately unreal. Find out what doesn't disappear. And then you know reality. And at first, Papaji just like, well, yeah, just almost stormed away. But something caught him. And he thought, well, why not check this out? Mm. And that was really what got him. He didn't leave for five more years. Oh, oh he was with him for five years. I <laughs> yeah, until Ramana died. Oh, uh, really? Sent him away. It was No, it was not when he died. It was actually when the partition of India happened. And Ramana sent him back to... Lahore to get his family, his Hindu family out. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, amazing. Now, uh, for everybody who's listening who is not familiar with Ramana Maharshi, uh, his particular teaching was based around self-inquiry. And uh, many people have difficulty in that when it's, you know, there, there are a number of different books Ramana speaks and and so on uh, that really outline this, but um, I'd like you to talk about it in the way that you have presented it to Western audience is, uh, shall we say, much more down to earth. <laughs> that uh, is a little bit more relatable. So that's why I'd love to to have you do that. Well, I had never read any of Ramana's books. Uh, when pe- Papaji asked me to go and speak to people, in fact, I went to Papaji and said, confessed, I, I haven't read Ramana's books. I, I don't, I never had heard of the word Advaita. Mm. I'm still not sure what Advaita means. But Papaji said, good, it's, you're not there to teach people. You're there to share your own experience. Mm. And so when I took that in and I realized that the only qualification for that is the willingness to discover my own experience that supported me profoundly in discovering what is in fact in reality always here. And then I found it just natural to, to take whatever a person is dealing with. And most people that I meet are, well, they're in a couple of classes, the spiritual seekers I meet are usually dealing with some sense of either they're not good enough for what they have received, some grace, some beauty, so some self-hatred, or they haven't yet made it, purified themselves enough, done enough to get that um, prize of self-realization. So that's the narrative that is overlaying a, a deeper something, fear, self-hatred, anger, and ultimately bliss. So if I can just support people in self-inquiry by really a willingness to tell the truth without the story about the truth or the story that legitimizes the suffering or just in this moment, not as a dogma or not that this is how you live your life. I know that some advisor practitioners say you should always be asking who am I, but that's not my message. I'm not an advisor practitioner. <laughs> I still am not sure what advisor means. <laughs> I haven't studied it. 
it's I'm really inviting people to take this moment, not some moment someday, but this very moment, and ask yourself, what is here? What are what am I experiencing? Not what I should be experiencing, or I've learned that's here, or I want to be here, or I'm afraid that's here. What is here? And for many people, especially Westerners, that, that usually starts with either a story or under that story an emotion. And so the inquiry is the willingness, first of all, to put the story over to the side and experience the emotion without a story. And then you can ask again, what is also here? What is here under that? So that inquiry, self-inquiry becomes a deep reflection inwardly first of what is alive in oneself. And finally, what is always here, whatever the emotion, whatever the narrative. And then it's not the emotion or the narrative that's the enemy. There is no enemy. It's the the willingness to discover, even in the face of what we think is the enemy, or what we feel is the enemy, we find this radiant, silent, ecstatic love of, of self, oneself, underneath it all. And then that's the beginning of living a life that's turned in that direction, where inward is so inward that it includes outward, because I don't want to make a a lasting distinction between inward and outward, yeah. since there is none. Yeah. Of course, that uh, coming to terms with truth and honesty is is a big deal. Yeah. And uh, uh, there's a g- great story that my friend Krishnadas tells about being with Neem Karoli Baba and an Indian devotee once. I, I've told this a number of times. It's such a great story. Uh, but uh, all of a sudden, Maharaji, he he looked at Krishnas and it was translated, courage is a very big thing. And the Indian man went, well, courage? What do you mean? It's, it's Guru Kripa, the grace of the Guru. We don't have to do anything. But, you know, he didn't quite say it, something like that. Mm-hmm. And Maharaji turned again and he went, courage is a very big thing. And that sustained Krishnas in many, many, many situations that uh, required that kind of inner truth con- connection and being able to open up in in ways that we don't really want to out of fear, out of what you were just discussing. So yeah, um, very important to me for that kind of, for going inside and being honest with oneself. And courage can be developed. You know, it's mm. a strength. It's a strength of character. Let's mm. say. And the more it is practiced or the more you are willing in this moment to be courageous in actually telling the truth about what you're experiencing, the easier that gets. It's a, like a muscle that yeah. develops with use. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then Papaji did tell you, okay, go on back and hang out with people. And you were yeah. like, okay, what? <laughs> <laughs> what am I supposed to be doing here? And uh, but just describe. You did go back and and kind of what happened. There's a neat story that I read about that uh, where you were. I think you were at a retreat and somebody just turned to you. If you remember that. Somebody, yes, I remember it really well because I couldn't imagine 
where my entree would happen, you know. Yeah. I, I didn't imagine announcing myself or leading it. And this uh, person who was attending a retreat my husband was giving just said, wow, I'm experiencing some burning. What's happening? I, I, every time I come near, I'm experiencing burning. I wasn't feeling burning in that moment. So I just trusted that as some, that she wanted something and that perhaps I could share my experience with her. Her name was Eileen, I remember it really uh-huh. well. And so I, I started asking her questions and invited her to ask me questions. And we got into a, a simple human-to-human dialogue that other people started noticing and, and coming around. This was at Esalen. Uh-huh in 1990 and so it was a very safe place for that kind of outlandish behavior <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and that's how it started it was mm-hmm. then it was catalytic from that yeah yes this is this when um osho died a lot of the osho devotees found papaji because yeah, i remember yeah i think that yeah Maybe Osho's last instructions were or find another master. And so they found Papaji just at the time that Papaji had said to me, go out and speak. So there was this kind of synchronicity where many people, and I've made really good friends with a lot of those former Osho devotees, to Santa Fe and different places invited me. And and so it was a ready-made <laughs> group. <laughs> That's great. That, and you know, I, I don't know how it happened except that way. It was a mystery, all mm, of it. Really. Still, of course. But uh, yes, yeah, satsang, mm. certainly the gathering of like-minded people. Mm. I think it's beautiful the way it started for you and just organically grew like that. But mm. uh, uh, I know that in our tradition, that is probably right at the very top mm. of things to do for people to support their their spiritual lives. Mm. And, uh, yeah, satsang. Babaji once said, and it's really helped me so much over the years to not take any of it personally, is that nobody gives satsang. We all just attend satsang. Mm. Beautiful. And that's the gift to, to be in a position where we attend satsang. Yeah. Impossible. Exactly. And I wish more people in the West would take that uh, perspective. Mm. Because well, thinking you're doing anything is a way to get lost. That's uh, right. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> boy. Um, well, we just mentioned, we've mentioned it a couple of times, and it's another thing that's dear to me in terms of uh, satsang and, and hanging out with people and talking about, and that's trust. Mm-hmm. Um, in my own case, I mentioned, of course, I had that tr- deep trust with Ramdas when I first met him that I hadn't. And I'll tell you, a lot of it was about in the moment that I met him, I was the only person who was alive in the world, is what I thought. Mm-hmm. Wow, that kind of mm-hmm. attention. Nobody had given me that kind of attention. Mm-hmm. And so it initiated a deep trust. And of course, his talks were, were so much around honesty, and I'm sure you're familiar. Um, but. Uh, trust uh, and you talk there's a little something I, I made a note of the surrendering to trusting this surrender to trusting and to being carried by the force that is present in all of us may even lead to discomfort or deprivation to some degree but in the long run this trust 
is following the di- the dictations of a profound desire. Mm. Uh, I love that, Gangaji. Maybe you could just expand upon it a little bit. Well, the desire I'm referring to is the desire to awaken or the yeah. desire to free or the desire to, to know what's true. I remember I was uh, walking, taking a walk with Papaji on the banks of the Ganga, and he was a very fast walker, so I was a little bit behind him trying to catch up. And I had this moment where a wave of old conditioning arose in me, Christian conditioning that I thought I had left behind 30 years before that moment. It's something about you're going you're gonna to burn in hell because this man you are following has many gods and there's only one. I mean, something very primitive and basic that I was shocked, but I felt it. I felt like a curse from my Christian upbringing. I'm following this, <laughs> you know, and it surprisingly shook me. And there was a, it was a split second where I had to choose between trusting my own experience, which was that when I was in the presence of this man, he was not leading me astray. He was actually pointing me home or trusting this old conditioning that I thought I had turned my back on long ago, but in fact was still somehow present in my cells. And I chose to trust my experience. And I, I even remember saying, well, if, I, if it leads me to hell, <laughs> I have to trust yeah. and meet, it, meet that. Because, of course, we can have that experience and make huge mistakes. But we can trust deeper than that. that the mistakes themselves will actually feed our desire for truth and service. Mm. Yes, beautiful. Uh, now, there's a great story that I particularly loved. It was about you going to India. I don't know if it was... Yeah, no, it's when you first went to India. And you you're uh, you have been a, a health practitioner. An acupuncturist, were you? Yeah. It's my wife. That's what she does. She's uh-huh. a Chinese medicine doctor. Great. Uh, and yogini. Uh, <laughs> and um, so you went there, of course, with all the stories in mind of what goes on... <laughs> disease-wise in India. Do you remember that story? You want to tell that? I don't remember the particular one, I'm sure. (laughs) You got into Delhi in the middle of the night and got into a motorcycle cart, and you arrived (laughs) during a Muslim celebration in the middle of the night. Yes, I remember that. I remember the experience really well. It was, it turned out our tuk-tuk driver was um, drunk. He was careening down the streets, and we ended up in Old Delhi. And just at the time, this uh, it was really at sunset, I guess. So the mosque was emptying of all these men, not another woman on site, and getting these horrific looks from these men. And our driver was useless at that point, and and I just had to surrender. I knew there was nothing I could do. It was absolutely out of my hands. It was my worst nightmare. <laughs> As a Western woman, you know, I could just see them thinking, whore. <laughs> oh, okay. So oh. there I am, not knowing what is next. And in that surrender, though, of course, as you know, and as most of your listeners know, I, I'm aware there's, there's the beauty and peace of 
the presence that bears it all. Yeah. So it became a funny story rather than a horror story. Yeah, where you got on a plane and went back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which people have done, I've known, yes. you know. Uh, but uh, that is, of course, a great beauty of India. Yes. It absolutely is uncompromising in having yeah. you surrender in the moment, right? Yes. And that's a perfect example of it. Uh, that's really, really great. Um, so there, the, let's see. We talk, I mean, you talked about Advait and said, yeah, I don't even know what Advait means. I, I mean, it is everybody out there commonly uh, defined as non-dual. Uh-huh. Non-dual, yeah. I understand. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I can follow that. <laughs> but you know, and this is funny, this has come up more than once, but when we first went to India, now, Neem Karoli Baba, our whole tradition is absolutely bhakti yoga, right? That's mm -hmm. the tradition. And on the sign, on the as you went in the gate, it said, Param Puja Advait Sri Neem Karoli Baba Hanuman Temple. What? Mm. <laughs> it seems to be all at odds. And of course, it's not at odds, and it is. There is only one thing, and there's, you know, different ways to approach it. And um, so, uh, I mean, I'd love to, uh, you know, because people will sometimes automatically dismiss Advaita path because they feel it's a great way to bypass a lot of stuff. And it's funny, I talked to Muji one day. We did a, a podcast, and I said a similar thing to him. He said, that's absolutely correct. And so is it with bhakti yoga. Yes. <laughs> People in bhakti. Perfect. So it's not. Yeah. So, Anything can be, everything will be corrupted yeah. by the, by by the, the mind. egoic mind, conceptual yeah. mind. So yeah. once we recognize that, then we, I think, actually find where we personally, as individuals, have an affinity. What draws us? And Papaji, again, used to say that the dove of freedom has two wings, and one is jnana, which is self-inquiry, and the other is bhakti. Mm. No, really. Devotion, mm. yeah. Mm. So just trusting again that your desire for freedom or truth or love, peace, whatever it's named, and will lead you to the right place. And then there is some choice. I, I had attended different... Well, when Muktananda came to town, he was in Oakland and I was in San Francisco. And so I would occasionally go to the 5 a.m. meditation. And it was, you know, great energy. And I wanted to feel like his devotees were feeling because it, I figured they looked like they were really getting something very important. Yeah. But I didn't. And then sometime after that, I actually had a position where I was anti-bhakti because I felt it was sentimental and bypassing the uh, real issues of, of the day. Whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I also I don't have any problem with a bypass because I think we have to have this permission to bypass all of the activity of mind or bypass the emotionality of mind and just go directly home. I believe that this bypass has gotten a very bad rap because of a particular psychotherapeutic overlay on that, that we should process all of our stuff. And that to me is 
somewhat of a denial of the grace of the guru or the possibility of just immediate recognition of what is always here. So I always tell people, yes, take the bypass immediately. Don't postpone for another moment your realization of yourself. And then if your vasanas or your stuff comes up, you have a choice. You can work on it if you are enriched by that work on it, or just immediately go home. Uh, I'm not recommending that people pretend to be home when they're not home, a kind of spiritual overlay. But I, I think we have to be free to immediately, whether it's in surrender to the guru and his bhakti, shakti, or, or it's whether this very precise focusing of the mind's attention on what is here. Do that immediately. We don't have to wait for that. Hmm. That's the first uh, bypass definition uh, that I've heard as a positive thing, so yeah. I learned something new here. Good, that's my mission. Yeah. I think it's a, a bad phrase because bypass, and you know, if you're on a highway that bypasses a town, you get to your destination quicker. And so in using a spiritual bypass as something negative, I think that we're implanting some kind of idea of time and, and in the future. If you, yeah. if you wander, Papaji would say, if you wander through these graveyards and dig up this garbage, then maybe you, you will get to your destination. But his message to us was always very strong. It's, it's here right now. Where you're trying to get is already here. Yeah. Yeah, I guess with a just so I clear with myself about what I mean by that is people adopting a spiritual persona that overlays the ego, and they're operating from that, which is not much different from where they were before they started the whole game. It's worse. Yeah. I would say it's worse. It's worse it's, yeah, it's you know that, and to me that word overlay is is much more descriptive. Yeah, of what's happening yeah, yeah. Um, and then. Here's something else from you that I loved. Uh, the issue of enlightenment is a non-issue. Love is the issue. Mm -hmm. The attainment of a certain state or a certain power overlooks the stateless love that is present in all states of power or powerlessness. Mm. Very yeah. good. I mean, that yeah, cuts yeah. to the core, no? I mean, and that's... That's where all of these different traditions come together, in my that's mind. Right. That's right. That's it. Yeah. That's the dog flying. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, let's see. There was something, something cool that I found uh, that you. Uh, it was a little blog that you wrote. I can't remember for who, but um, it was an invitation to suspend all diagnosing. Diagnosing. All diagnostics be suspended for a day. See if you can do that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I like talk that. about I that. Yeah. That. <laughs> How does that work? And talk about even the suggestion of it. Well, how much time and energy are we putting on our diagnoses? I mean, certainly some time needs to go into some health diagnoses if we're 
ill, but generally what uh, a seeker's diagnosis is, I'm, I'm this much enlightened and not this much, and I need to clean this up, and then I'll get there. If I only meditated more, I would get this, or if I did this right or felt this right. And, and that's the entanglement. And I mean, it's a kind of narcissism. And so the very impetus of uh, true spiritual desire is to get out of that narcissistic entanglement but very cleverly can take the desire for getting out of the ego into just another egoic spin. And so I'm always recommending in whatever ways I can think of that people be willing to stop the narrative of where you are, who you are, where you've been, where you're going, and really back to Ramdas who got us all started i would say and be here now yeah (laughs) but this is a good idea though in this blog you say for one day you're willing to withhold (laughs) all opinions of pathology either self-talk or uh oh that person's fat that one's skinny that one's smart that one's can you do that for one i think that's a fantastic exercise that i invite everybody out there who's listening right now You can write to me and say, what happened when you actually, for one day, Mm. got into that suspension? Now, in our times, that would be enormously difficult for what's going on in in the atmosphere of of our world. It's a retreat. It's a retreat, yeah. Willingness to give yourself a retreat. Yeah. Uh, So we ought to try that. We have to see if I can't organize it, get the... uh, the ramdas.org people to do that that would be great on social media now but just to deepen into this a little bit more um uh we've used the powerful dual of uh, tool of diagnostic language to separate ourselves from others and have suffered from the result if someone radically disagrees with us we can easily categorize him or her as imbecilic or delusional how else could it be possible that they see the world so differently? Well, that just absolutely addresses the polarization that we have going in this country at this time. And, uh, I mean, Gangaji, I have been doing this for decades myself, as you, and I have to say my knee-jerk reactions around what is going on from... Uh, the President of the United States and others in his uh, entourage. Uh, I'm having a very, I need to do the, uh, the, the you know, the one day non judgmental internal external thing, uh, and I need to do that retreat. But I mean, I think I am not, I am not at all singular in how uh, the difficulties that, uh, that we are being presented with, and uh, any prescriptions aside from the one that we just talked about? In, well, uh, I wouldn't give that one we just talked about as a dogma. I, I think to live a truly engaged life, it's appropriate that you have your opinions and you have your reactions. I'm having, like you, very strong reactions. To, I mean, in any direction, whether it's our politics here, our global situation, or we have fires burning all around us here in Ashland. You know, there's smoke in the air. We have to wear masks. Oh, but, right. Well, I definitely have a reaction to that. But to me, the issue is 
are you suffering with that? So you can have a reaction of anger or a reaction of fear or a reaction of determination to work to stop something that you see is, is detrimental to yourself or your people or your planet without suffering with it. And the suffering is when we work the diagnosis over and over. He's horrible. Yes, he's horrible. He's terrible. He's terrible. Yeah, he's horrible. And now what? And, and is he is horrible, but he's here. He and whoever he may be, and there's definitely some she's in that, that group. Yeah, right. Exactly. And there's a kind of war that's going on. And sometimes I think war, as horrible as it is, is inevitable. But the war that is going on in the war is unnecessary. Mm. Mm. That there's actually peace at the core. And if we are willing, at the very least, to stop contributing to the suffering or the war making by our, in not just knee jerk, but staying with it. I think that a reaction is natural, but then somehow when that becomes the source of your suffering, it, it doesn't make sense. And then you are, you're not the beacon of light that you are. There's a denial of, of some truth that's untouched by this horror that's happening in our country yeah and there are ways in which i find people and myself at times i i have pretty good awareness to see the enjoyment mm -hmm. that you start to get mm -hmm. out of tossing barbs at the television or whatever you might be doing you know there's a certain enjoyment that we get into that uh, is a yeah really a cause of the the kind of polarization and separation that we live in so th that's there to too the <laughs> <laughs> that's telling the truth yeah sort of schadenfreude and you know when something goes wrong with the enemy the kind of bliss that happens from that and it's like oh my goodness and just a willingness to be humbled by that yeah See that we're we still have these animal consciousness these animal forms and and we do have particular reactions but yeah. i grew up in the south and in mississippi oh yeah. and, um, i come from a lineage of right-wing people who were racist and and yet were actually very good people except for this part which was very bad i mean i did get away from that but if i look back at my father and my grandfather and my mother and my grandma. If I look back, I, I had no idea that I had racist views until I went to college. I mean, I just thought that's the way the world was. Wow. So it took a professor in college challenging my views for me to actually start to wake up there. Thank God he was willing to come to Mississippi and challenge my views mm -hmm. in a way that as an 18 year old, I could hear it. So I feel that there are those who are attuned to you and your program who could be very useful in playing a major part or some part in supporting people and recognizing where they're, they're mean-spirited the best views are leading. And so I, I encourage people to to see if there's something that they can actually do with 
this energy that's been stirred up rather than just circulating it back into one's own personal suffering. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well said. Um, and talking about suffering, of course, uh, you've, you've written a wonderful book called The Diamond in Your Pocket. I think, is that the, you've written many books, but that's the most recent one, I think. That's actually the first one that really hit it because Eckhart Tolle endorsed it so long. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was that was a favorite story of Papaji's about the, the best place to hide a diamond from the thief who has stolen the diamond is back in the merchant's own pocket because he uh, would never think to look in his own pocket. Uh, that's oh, that's great. Anyhow, you do talk about it, uh, and this is a subject that I have been speaking a lot about uh, recently, and. Uh, with different friends, different teachers that you that you know as well, uh, around basically we we call it. Uh, it was coined by again my my friend Krishna Das. Uh, we wake up in the morning to the movie of me, in which we play the title character, and you talk about this uh, even uh, the belief that you're just a character in a story. Perhaps since the main character. It takes a tremendous amount of maintenance, boy, does it ever. Um, holding on to the pleasure aspects of the st- pleasurable aspects of the story, and then attempting to keep out anything that would destroy this good story. <laughs> I love the way you put that. Then there are attempts to blame others who don't agree with the story or don't somehow validate or contribute to the story of your work. Yeah. Um, Sounds delusional, doesn't it? Yeah, we are. Del- uh, and uh, I. It's funny because uh, somebody, uh, Adi Ashanti, who's a lovely person and wonderful teacher, and he uh, he talked. I had a chat with him, and he talked about, yeah, I was a kid. I looked at my parents, and who we were doing all of these crazy things and reacting and anger and stuff, the whole thing. And I went, finally, I realized they're crazy. They're insane, <laughs> and I got to figure out how to not go on that road. <laughs> That's the awakening right there, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, but talk a little bit more about, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there are definitely ways for us to engage ourselves to unravel this story. And, mm-hmm. of course, this story ca- is very endemic to the idea that we are all separate. Mm-hmm. And so it is It is important to really address this uh this identification with roles and, and so on and uh, and unravel so that we understand there is a we. Mm. So, yeah, talk about maybe a little bit about how to address that. Well, it could be maturity, you know. It mm. seems to me that the, the impetus for this egoic mind is survival because if, if we are identified with this particular as separate and perhaps threatened by other form, this form is more liable to survive. We take care of it, feed it, we listen to it. But and I think that what happens in our culture and all cultures, not just our particular culture, but that gets so reinforced that the natural maturing out of that, where you recognize that, oh, you know that bird also has a, is invested in surviving and where you at least recognize the relationship of all being 
is a natural growth that somehow gets arrested and certainly in Western society where we sort of worship the adolescent power and sexuality and power again. And so it's really a recognition that if we are, if we see the insanity in that, that's already the maturity of the mind growing up. And if we are willing to find out what is already seen within us, which is the seeing of the insanity, and then we are back to trusting that that, that light, that little gem of sanity actually can live this life quite well, even though there will be hard times and there'll be mistakes, but just the, the ridge pole of a life that is based in sanity and love and peace and inclusion is a mature life. And we've made in the West, in, our, in America, we've made maturity like old age yeah. rather than flowering. And it's really a flowering. And it, for Ramana, it happened when he was 16. So it's not a chronological maturity. It's maybe a mystery, but it's possible for anyone who already has that spark of desire to be free, because that's the desire for sanity, mm. the desire for cooperation, the desire that our planet not be destroyed. Mm. It's, it's basic sanity. Yeah, and the overarching theme I would say, in, in everything that you speak of, is truth. Mm. And uh, I, I don't know if it's a reach, but I interpret that in my own experience as divine presence. That's mm. the deepest truth of, of all of us. And um, you being fortunate to be in, it, it's, it's very fortunate and a tremendous amount of grace to be in that divine presence which you another person of that nature it's uh, pretty great and mm -hmm. you never forget that and then sharing that identification yeah. huh it's really what luck. yeah yeah what really pure luck yeah. because yeah. it's beyond deserveability certainly yeah <laughs> oh i'll say that. You're no you're good you're deserving <laughs> not me <laughs> none of us is fine because it's not in that realm you know yeah so, right it's so far out of that free of that deservability yeah no oh mm. great to hang out with you here oh, I love and, it. and meet I love you it. this is the best part of uh of doing podcasts is uh mm. being able to just share time mm, it's so, really beautiful yeah i feel like we're brother and sister here yeah. Yeah, so great. great. Now, we're going to, um, everybody out there, we're going to, uh, you'll go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and you'll go to the to the show notes page and Gangaji's uh, select it. We'll select some books that you can get and websites and ways to, I mean, you still are um, going around and sharing? Yeah, I, I've abbreviated my schedule a little. I've just stopped going to Europe. This oh, really? Trip to Europe, but... I'm here in uh, Oregon, and I go to California and Canada, and I'll go to Australia in the winter. So, yeah, I'm still out and about. You're as still long out and about. That's a Canadian thing, out and about. That's where I'm from. 
<laughs> yeah. well, I love Canada. Yeah. But he says there's no retirement in this business. Yeah, right. <laughs> what a blessing that is. Yeah. Well, look, you know, Ramdas is now, what, 87, been in a wheelchair for 21 years, half paralyzed, and with aphasia, and it's, it's like teaching more than he ever did. Yeah, so, it's beautiful, too. There's a radiance that I remember seeing in Ramana's last pictures, too, just not the form. It's yeah. Deeper. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really, really, really so, really so. Well, uh, thank you again. Oh, I'm so honored to have been a part of this. Thank it's, you. It's really, really great. And everybody, uh, this is Mind Rolling and Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and we shall see you next week.